Today is Pentecost. It's the 50th day of Easter. We've had seven full weeks and a day now to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. We've heard stories over those weeks of our risen Lord's encounters with the disciples, how he showed himself to them and encouraged them to carry on in his name. We've seen him ascend triumphantly into heaven, yet as today begins, we find ourselves right back where we started, back in Jerusalem, back in an upper room, huddled with the other disciples, including some of the women, not really sure what to do next. And then it happened. From heaven above, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the house. The Holy Spirit manifested as tongues of fire came down and alighted on each of the disciples. Each of them was filled with the power of God's Spirit, and they all began to speak in other languages. It was a strange sight and sound to behold. When the people of Jerusalem heard the great commotion, they ran to see what was happening. When they heard and saw this group of Galilean tradesmen speaking in their own native languages, the crowd couldn't believe it. They couldn't explain it. Amazed to the point of disbelief, those in the crowd could best make sense of what they saw and heard by saying that these men and women must be drunk. Now that might not make a lot of sense either, but how else would you explain how these uneducated, barely literate fishermen, net menders, how they had figured out how to speak fluently in all the languages of the known world. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, had a different explanation. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, he said to the crowd, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. According to Peter, if we want to understand what happened on the day of Pentecost, we should take a look at that day's events through the lens provided by the prophet Joel, who himself had made sense of another chaotic moment in Jerusalem's history. Joel wrote about a great calamity that befell God's people. In his generation, it was a plague of locusts that had been brought on by a terrible drought they descended upon the land. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, the prophet wrote. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. 
so thorough and complete was the destruction that the people of God had no way to understand it except as divine punishment for their misdeeds. In fact, the catastrophe was so great that successive generations reinterpreted the prophet's words as a timeless depiction of trouble for their own day. What was once an army of locusts came to represent an army of soldiers. And by the time Joel's words get to us in their present form, the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians had been woven into the prophet's account. But Peter didn't choose Joel only because of its depiction of destruction. It's what comes next, I think, that got Peter's attention. From the rubble and the stubble of a near total loss, a new chapter of prosperity for God's people emerged. As the prophet declared, God is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishing. The prophet explains that because of the people's repentance, God became once again jealous for the land. God had pity on God's people. God sent them grain and wine and oil, a plentiful harvest so that the people might be satisfied. No more would they be a mockery among the nations because God had brought forth their vindication. But even then, the prophet wasn't finished, and neither was Peter. What makes Joel distinct among the prophets is his understanding that God's reversal of the fortunes of God's people was a sign that God would one day bring about a total and complete reversal of human history. If God would intervene and save God's people from near total destruction, then God must eventually work that salvation to its complete and perfect end. And for Joel, the sign that God's ultimate saving work had come to the earth was what Peter recognized in the moment of Pentecost. In the last day, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. When God's spirit is no longer reserved for kings and prophets, but is poured out on all sorts and conditions of people, women and men, young and old, slave and free, that means that God's saving work is nearly finished. When ordinary folk like Galilean tradespeople are filled with God's power, it means that the ultimate vindication of God's people has drawn near. When Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up to preach the first ever Christian sermon, he proclaimed that the death and resurrection of Jesus were signs of God's great reversal and that the sending down of the Holy Spirit was evidence that the final moment of God's salvation had come to the earth. 
Given this divinely inspired moment of multilingual prophecy, we might think that this is the moment when God's salvation, which stretches to the ends of the earth, comes to us as well. But that's not what Peter had in mind that day, because that's not what the prophet Joel foresaw. The time will come, a few chapters later in the book of Acts, when the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to the Gentiles. But first, salvation and vindication must come to the people of God, the people of Israel. Those who were gathered at Jerusalem at Pentecost were indeed represented by all of those different languages, but the biblical text makes it clear to us that all those gathered were Jewish, either by birth or by conversion. When Joel wrote about salvation coming to all who call upon the name of the Lord, and when Peter expanded that understanding of name to include the name of Jesus, both of them envisioned God's deliverance coming exclusively to the covenant people of Abraham. For the rest of us, this moment means something quite different. For Joel and for the preacher who quoted him, the coming of God's spirit signified a troubling end for the other nations of the earth. According to the prophet, Egypt and Edom, Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia, all who tormented and oppressed God's people must have their evil deeds turned upon their heads. Those who sold God's people into slavery and who captured their gold and silver will themselves be ransacked and made captive. As a great reversal of Isaiah's peace-filled prophecy, Joel instructed God's people to beat their plowshares back into swords and their pruning hooks back into spears. We don't talk about it very much because we don't really like to hear it. But in order for God's complete and total salvation to come to the earth, those who were oppressed must be vindicated and those who were the oppressors must be held accountable. Peter wants us to see that truth unfolding at Pentecost. Pentecost was a moment when God's spirit came to the earth and filled those disciples with new and unfamiliar power. It was a power that neither they nor the world had ever known before. The power of God poured out discriminately upon God's people. That power meant that God's work of salvation was coming to its fruition But the Spirit didn't give the apostles the power to make the world right by pretending everything had been okay all along. Instead, it was the power to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus as the moment when the whole world was called to account and judged by God. Those who call upon God's name, no matter what language or dialect they spoke, they would be saved. But those who had mocked the name of God by unjustly imprisoning God's people and robbing them of their God-given inheritance, they would be condemned. 
Whenever God's spirit begins speaking like that, through ordinary women and men whom the powers of this world would normally ignore, we had better sit up and take notice. In God's perfect time, salvation will come to all people, but for some of us, that salvation starts in a different place. For most of us in this church, And in this community, the path to salvation must begin with recognition and repentance. By sending the Holy Spirit, God has brought the power of God's ultimate vindication to the earth, but it isn't we who need vindicating. Those of us who own property, who amass wealth and pass it along to our children, and who can, without hesitation, count on the officers in blue to defend our lives and our property, we aren't the ones who need the powers of this world to be turned on their heads before we can be saved. What we need is to be saved from the powers of our own creation. We need to be saved from the powers for which we are responsible. Recognizing that and repenting of the self-preserving systems that we have created is how we leave behind the identity of the oppressor and by God's grace are brought into God's family. We must remember who it is for whom our Savior died. The coming of the Holy Ghost made that truth clear to the whole world. In Jesus Christ, God has reversed the fortunes of all people. If God's salvation is meant for us as well, we must change course. We must leave behind the world we know, the world that feeds our egos, and fills our pockets, and embrace the reign of God, the reign where the poor become rich, where the prisoners are set free, and where the oppressed are liberated from their oppressors.